he'd pause for a commercial interlude, and then he'd come back and tell you the rest of the story, right? And he'd give the backstory on, on various uh, parts of our history, and it was always, you know, a little, little twist, a little turn, something you didn't expect or see before and, or know before. And I want to try to do something similar to that this morning for Palm Sunday. We, we, most of us are aware that the Sunday before uh, Jesus was crucified, he came into Jerusalem uh, in this unusual way. We, we rarely stop to think about the implications of how Jesus came into Jerusalem. Um, and we even more rarely stop to think about what Jesus was, the, I guess the full extent of what Jesus was saying by the manner in which he entered Jerusalem. And so I want to take you not to the passage we read to the kids about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, but to the passage that Jesus is evoking there. Uh, Matthew, as he was writing the gospel, understood this fully. He knew that Jesus was, was fulfilling a prophecy that was made by the prophet Hezekiah uh, back you know, several hundred years prior to Christ. And Matthew got the point, made the observation when he recorded his gospel, and, but doesn't explain it to us because it would have been self-evident to him as a Jew. He would have gotten the reference. He would have been very familiar with the writings of the prophet Hezekiah. And as soon as Jesus evoked uh, that passage from the ninth chapter of Hezekiah, uh, Matthew would have understood the full implications of what he was saying. Matthew's audience, the, the people that Matthew was writing to, uh, were also Jewish. And they would have understood more of the full implications of what Jesus was saying by the way he came into town. So I want to take you back to the book of Zechariah. Did I say that wrong earlier? I didn't. No, I didn't. I said Zechariah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Come on, help me out. Zechariah. Dude, uh, yeah, yeah. You try it. Wait till we start reading through this one. Oh, I, 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 exe- I excerpted that part. That's okay. Good. All right. There's some good weird names in chapter 9 if you want to try to read them all. Um, so I'm going to start in chapter 9 of Zechariah. And then I'm going to bounce around the book and pick up various references that would have sort of helped, will help you understand the sum total of what Jesus was trying to communicate as he fulfilled this prophecy at the point of his triumphal entry to Jerusalem. All right, beginning in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, 
I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And now I'm going to jump through the book of Zechariah a few times, and we're going to start in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And then from Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. And then from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And then Zechariah 14, 8 and 9. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name the only name. So let's just evoke again the contrast that, that we talked about with the kids. How would a king enter his home city? He wouldn't be walking. And if he was riding, if he was wanted to be seen as a warrior king, he would be on a tall, white war horse. Full armor, full array of colors and symbols and the whole nine yards. And there he would be, sort of as a display of power and prominence before his people. Is Jesus kidding? Like, seriously, is this, is this a joke that he's making? Because on one level, it's hilarious. He, he tells his followers, you know, go get me not just a donkey, but it's foal. So he's riding into Jerusalem with his toes dragging in the dirt. I mean, this would be like Smitty getting on my daughter's bike, all right? with, you know, the little glitter things coming off the handlebars, right? And uh, you'd pay to see that. How much would you buy a chair to see that? <laughs> Here we go. No, we're not. This is fundraiser's over. Well, we get, well, never mind. 
Yeah, keep going. But is he kidding? Uh, there have been, there've been some uh, more recent speculators who've said uh, that he was mocking Herod by entering Jerusalem this way and sort of egging him on and, and setting up uh, Pilate and Herod for, um, for his crucifixion. And I suppose that would be a, a good way to enter town if you had a death wish, right? Come in mocking the, the governor. Um, but I don't think that's what he was doing. I don't think this was a, a defiant move, but it was, it was a deliberate move. And I won't, I won't erase from the realm of possibility that Jesus might have been laughing a little bit inside. I mean, this is funny in one sense. Ridiculous, almost, in another sense. Um, but he's dead serious about what he's doing. He's making an enormous point and leaving all who are observing with a host of implications and expectations, I might add. And so here's what he's doing. He's doing two things. He's fulfilling a prophecy. And he's, he's knowingly, intentionally fulfilling the prophecy. Some, some prophecies are fulfilled unwittingly, right? Like the people who are fulfilling them don't nece aren't necessarily in control of the circumstances. I, I would think of the virgin birth as an example. Mary didn't have a whole lot of uh, voice in that deal, although she, she did uh, go along with God's will beautifully, as a matter of fact. Um, but Jesus here is very intentionally going about the fulfillment of a prophecy. He's going out of his way to say, here's exactly how I want to do this. And when he, when he evokes the prophecy of Zechariah, um, he's not just evoking chapter 9, where the prophecy occurs, but the entirety of the work of Zechariah. And here's the context, all right? This prophet lives in a time where Israel both, so just to give you the history in, in, in brief form, summary form, the kingdom of Israel was divided after Solomon, and they lived sort of uh, as two separate kingdoms, a few civil wars here and there um, for many hundreds of years. And then the northern kingdom is desecrated by a foreign army and taken into captivity. And only little, the little bitty postage stamp of the state of Judah, where Jerusalem is, remains. It goes on for another hundred years or so, and then it gets overrun by the armies of Babylon. And all of the intelligentsia, all of the elite are taken out of Jerusalem and moved to, uh, to Babylon, to what is now um, Iraq. And uh, <coughs> then a strange thing happens. The prophets who, who foresee this tell everybody, well, you'll be taken away, but God will bring you back. And Zechariah lives in the time where God's people are beginning to return to Jerusalem. The problem is 
it's rubble. It's a pile of rubble. When the Babylonians did something, they did it. They did it to the fullest extent. And so they had pulled down every stone in the walls of Jerusalem and in the buildings and in the temple of Jerusalem. Everything was rolled over. They didn't miss a thing. And so Zechariah is preaching or speaking or prophesying to the people who have returned, and they see this pile of rubble, and their hopes are dashed. And he calls them in this passage prisoners of hope. And he says, lift your heads, because God is coming back. And when he fulfills these words to the complete extent that he will, everything will change. And so Jesus is evoking the entirety of the work of Hezekiah, um, of uh, Zechariah, I'm going to keep doing that all day long, um, of Zechariah when he comes riding in on this donkey. In other words, he's, he's not just saying, I'm doing this one thing out of chapter 9, but he's saying, I'm ushering in the fullness of what this guy prophesied today. It's all coming together now. Pay attention. And the first the first truth I would like to take you to from this prophet's work is the call to enjoy the peace of Christ, the peace that will be ushered in by the Messiah. We are first and foremost called not only in, cha- in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9, but elsewhere throughout the book of Zechariah to celebrate his coming. The coming of Christ is a cause for celebration. The return of the Messiah or the fulfillment of prophecy is a cause for celebration. God is working. He's fulfilling his word. And we're to celebrate that in unexpected ways. His coming happens. It it comes about in unexpected ways. Um, Let me take you just to one word, and I'm not sure. Actually, I am kind of sure why they did this. But uh, in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, it says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. That word, there is a Hebrew word for righteous, and that's not the word that's there. The NIV made a, a, a translator's choice in inserting the word righteous there because they didn't want people to get confused about, about what was being said. But let me give you the literal word that, uh, or the translation of the word that's there. Poor. Let's read it again. Your king comes to you poor and having salvation. In other words, your king is in poverty. What? And he will come riding in Not on a big white horse, but on the foal of a donkey. His feet will be dragging in the dirt. And Jesus kind of caps it off by borrowing a donkey for the job. All right? He he doesn't even rent one. He just borrows one. That wasn't me. I'm telling you. They're working on it. Um... 
so, okay. Jesus comes in unexpected ways to unexpected people. Did you catch this reference in verse 10 where he talks about making peace and then his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth? That is, all nations, all peoples, all types of people will be included in this new Jerusalem, in this new temple that Jesus is going to create. We're to celebrate his coming because he comes in unexpected ways to unexpected people. Um, How true is this today for each one of us that we're not here because we're deserving of God's love. In fact, uh, if you're anything like me, you've done plenty to disqualify yourself from the grace of God. But in his pattern of unexpected ways, he comes to us and he draws us to himself and he changes who we are. And it doesn't matter what color our skin is, what heritage we come from, or what class of society we may find ourselves in. We are to celebrate his coming, and we can count on his covenant. He tells us in this passage that his covenant is the guarantee of this peace. Now, think about verse 10 again. He's saying he's going to break the bows of war, disband the armies. And all of the conflict that surrounds us in life will be dealt with in Christ. That when the Messiah comes, everything will change. The way we relate to others, the way we understand ourselves. And he reminds us that his covenant is always guaranteed by blood. In his case, in the Messiah's case, it's guaranteed by his own blood, the blood that he would shed on the cross. And that is where we find the redemption of God's covenant love, or where we find redemption within God's covenant love. Redemption by his blood and restoration in his strength. And so this king who comes in poverty and humility and without pretense to change everything, to change the way we relate to each other and to the world. He comes and promises restoration. In its first context, these words had huge implications. Look around you. There's rubble. Your life is a wreck. Look around. Because I will, I will come to you and I will restore you to twice what you once were. And this sort of double portion of restoration is promised here by the prophet. So we are called to enjoy his peace, the peace of Christ ushered in by the coming of the Messiah. And we are also called to seek his presence. 
there is a promise in these chapters throughout Zechariah that God will come to dwell with his people. This has always been inherently part of what it means to be Israel. When Moses led God's people out of Egypt, they built a tabernacle. This is a portable temple made mostly out of uh, cloth and carried around on poles. And they carried this thing with them throughout the desert. It was a symbol of the presence of God. And there were two things that I want to point out about this, this portable temple. Um, it held the Ark of the Covenant, all right? And it also was the place, the center point of the life of Israel and the place of sacrifice where blood was spilled. The covenant sacrifices of animals in this case. Well, God here is redefining what Israel is going to mean. He's saying that this Messiah will come and he will rebuild the temple. Let me ask you a question. Has the Messiah come? Yes, he has come once. He'll come again. Um, and the next time he comes, he'll be on a white horse, by the way. All right. Um, but uh, the Messiah has come. Is there a temple in Jerusalem? Yes or no? No. Do you know what sits on the Temple Mount, on the site of the temple in Jerusalem? The Dome of the Mosque. Or the, yeah, whatever. Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque. All right? Now, this is just me. Actually, it's not just me. There's a lot of people who would say this. But I think God's, like, given us a little message there, okay, that Jerusalem, as a geographical, political entity, is not the temple of Christ. Where is the temple of Christ? Look around. You're it. And if you read these words of Hezekiah, um, let me take you to chapter 2. Dang it. The words of this prophet. Dude. All right. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 11, I will live among you. Let's just take that for its simplicity. All right. And then chapter 6, verse 12. Here's the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. What has the church done since Christ came? It has branched out all over the world. And you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are as the people of Christ. And so, okay, I got a little bit ahead of myself. But we're to see the redefinition of Israel in, these, in the fulfillment of these prophecies by Christ. The incarnation versus the temple. So Jesus says, I will come and live among you. God will become human and change the game. Um, the idea of incarnation versus the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, the holy seat of the presence of God, the invisible presence of God. And then the redefinition of Israel as it extends to all nations versus just one nation. 
So the original plan of God for Israel was that they would be a light unto all nations. Did they pull that off? Not so much. So God says, I'll take care of that for you. And he fulfilled everything that Israel was commanded to be in Christ. And as we are included in Christ, we are the new Israel, as Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Um, so there's a redefinition of who Israel is, and we're to see that and become a part of God's extension of His grace to the ends of the earth. And we're to see the explosion of the church, of what it means to be the people of God. That it's not centered around ethnicity or language or culture, but it's exploded out to the ends of the earth. That is, the church is to be everywhere all the time. Not just Sunday, by the way. You are the church at school, at work, at home, at all times. And the church has exploded in that we go from this, this, okay, the people of Israel lived in a context where the, there were gods at war with one another all the time. So there'd be a battle, and whatever, whatever tribe was leading one side of the battle would invoke the name of their god. Like, I'm, we're the, we got the god of that hill over there. And we're going to go take over, and we're going to beat up the god of that lake over there. Okay? And that's the way they all thought. And there was this sort of competing question, whose god is bigger? Who's going to win? And Zechariah sums it up and says this, there will, there will be a day of one god. Paul says it differently uh, in the New Testament, that at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow. And so we see this exploded idea of what the church is. And as we're called to enjoy His peace and seek His presence, so we're also called to delight in His salvation. To crown Christ as Lord over our lives. To give Him that authority that he rightfully possesses. Now, I want to take you briefly into this prophecy in chapter 6. Um, I don't know if you caught what was going on, but God says, okay, call together some of the leaders of Israel, have them make an offering of gold and silver. Melt it down, make a crown. Upon the head of whom is the crown rightfully placed? The king, right? In any society, the king. Upon whose head is the crown placed in this prophecy? The priest, the high priest, all right? Hezekiah is saying, we're changing the rules. Up until now, dang it, Zechariah, that guy, whatever, I'm just going with the prophet. The prophet in question, wow. All right, so he says, this is a game changer. And up until now, Israel has had three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And each of these have operated independent of one another, but there is coming one who will unify 
all and fulfill every office of Israel. What did Matthew call Jesus at the end of that passage we read with the kids? The prophet from Nazareth, right? And here, Zechariah says that he's both the high priest and the king. This is the first time that those two offices have been combined in the history of Israel. And it's a foretelling of what will come, of what the Messiah will bring with him, is this union of all the offices of Israel. We're to crown him as Lord in our own lives. Do you know what, did you see the name of the guy that he said to put this crown on? Did you notice that? Joshua. You know what Joshua means? It means God saves. It's the Old Testament way of saying Jesus. So when you get to the New Testament, which is written in Greek, and you try to transliterate the Greek transliteration of Hebrew into English, you get Jesus. If you go the Old Testament, old school route, Jesus' name is Joshua, as we transliterate the Hebrew. It's actually just Peter, but we won't get into that right now. All right. He holds the authority of heaven in his hands. He is the rightful king of all. And he does the work of salvation on behalf of his people. He is our priest, our high priest, who goes before us as a mediator between us and God and lays down the sacrifice by which we find forgiveness. We are to delight in the salvation that is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and we are to bathe in his grace. To live in the security of being part of God's family. You're in. You're covered, you're loved, you have an inheritance, the Bible says, that lasts for how long? Forever. And you see these, uh, in, the, in uh, chapter 14, the living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. This, this presence of Christ by which we are fed and nourished will spread out to both ends of the earth, if you will, in all directions. It will never cease. And his family will be created around the world. And we're to live in the security of being part of the family of God and find renewed security as his people. On that day, Zechariah 13, 1, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. We have forgiveness eternal in this one who came into Jerusalem with his hose dragging in the dirt, working intentionally still because he was making a point as the people of God, wondering if this might be Jesus, grabbed whatever they could find, ripped the branches off of palm trees, and waved them frantically around in celebration, laid them down at his feet. And he said, these paths will bring you peace. Will you pray? God, our loving Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gift of your son. 
that he was willing that his palms would be pierced for our transgressions. That the suffering that brought us peace was upon him. Lord, we thank you for this gift. And we pray that you would lead us into the peace that was brought to us by his palms. That we might